0: Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. This is part two of the four-part series from Dr. Sparks and Dr. Sinclair about AKI, focusing on workup. So now we've defined as AKI, why don't we start working up and see what we think could be potentially causing it. Um, so, I think the easiest way to do this uh, is to categorize it into three categories, and that was how I always did it in residency and it made it a lot easier for me to kind of com- compartmentalize what I was thinking. Um, so, the first category would be prerenal azotemia, which accounts for about 50 to 70 percent of cases. Uh, the second would be postrenal or obstructive nephropathy, which uh, accounts for about 5 percent of cases, and then intrinsic renal disease, which accounts for the remainder of cases. So by doing this, you really ensure that you don't miss anything. So why don't we start by going through prerenal azotemia, which is basically a functional form of AKI that results from diminished kidney perfusion. Now, this decreased perfusion can occur for a number of reasons. Most people think of it as volume depletion, which is true, but it can also occur in patients who are intravascularly overloaded. And this can be seen in patients who have what's known as the cardiorenal syndrome or advanced liver disease. Since there's actually no parenchymal damage in prerenal azotemia, Once renal perfusion is restored, kidney function should theoretically normalize. This is different from intrinsic renal disease where kidney function does not normalize with restoration of renal perfusion. And then finally, in obstructive nephropathy, kidney function will also continue to worsen until the obstruction is resolved, after which point you should see an improvement in patient
1: serum creatinine. So now that you've gone through that, what are the markers that can help us differentiate between the different types of AKI?
0: Good question. So with obstructive nephropathy, it can usually be ruled out by simple imaging studies, such as a renal or bladder ultrasound. Additionally, if you put a Foley catheter in a patient who's, and they put out a large volume of urine, you could also pretty much say that they, they had some type of obstruction going on, possibly a functional bladder outlet obstruction. Now, pre-renal versus intrinsic renal are sometimes a little hard to differentiate from each other. There's a few simple lab tests we could look at, however, to help us here. So one of the easiest things to look at first is the BUN creatinine ratio, where a BUN creatinine ratio that's greater than 20 to 1 would be suggestive of prerenal azotemia, and a BUN creatinine ratio closer to 10 to 1 is more suggestive of intrinsic renal disease. Now, Dr. Sparks, a lot of medical students and residents ask me about the fractional excretion of sodium mm. and or the fractional excretion of urea. It's a pretty hot topic, so um, and the terms are thrown around pretty frequently. So, are they really helpful?
1: Oh, glad you asked. Uh, this is one of my favorite topics to discuss. We have to go back all the way to 1978, where the initial paper was published uh, in the Annals of Internal Medicine. In this paper, acute renal failure—that was the term of the time—AKI had not yet been uh, named such. Um, They were defined that as an acute elevation of serum creatinine from normal levels, which they defined as less than or equal to 1.4, to greater than 2. And based on that criteria, patients were then divided into five subgroups, including the following. Prerenal azotemia, oliguric acute renal failure, which equates to what we think of as ATN. Non-oliguric acute renal failure, acute obstructive uropathy, and acute glomerulonephritis. The following urinary diagnostic indices were then measured or calculated on each patient. Urine sodium concentration, urine to plasma ratio of creatinine, or the UP creatinine, the urine sodium divided by the UP creatinine, they call this the renal failure index, and the FENa, or the fractional excretion of filtered sodium, which was the urine to plasma sodium divided by the urine to plasma creatinine times 100. And this is how we calculate FINA. This can be further simplified to 100 times urinary sodium times serum creatinine, divided by serum sodium times the urine creatinine. Now, good news is we have calculators to do this now. (laughs) But when we rounded on the wards, maybe back... 15, 20 years ago, that was a great pimp question that we would get asked by our attendings. Luckily, we don't do that anymore. Glad I wasn't around then. (laughs) (laughs) Interestingly, Affina of less than 1% was observed in 27 of the 30 pre renal patients and only one of the 24 oliguric renal failure patients. A renal fa- failure index of less than 1 was seen in 25 out of 30 prerenal patients and 0 out of 24 oliguric renal failure patients. Of note, patients with non-oliguric renal failure frequently had values of Fena and the renal failure index that were intermediate between what you would see in pre-renal azotemia and oliguric renal failure. Furthermore, patients with GNs actually appeared more similar to those with pre-renal azotemia, with regards to indices, while patients with obstructive nephropathy had indices more like ATN.
0: Interesting. So it sounds like in this paper, they were pretty much equating uh, oliguric renal failure uh, to ATN. And the main takeaway here is that the FENA seems to be helpful in differentiating those patients with oliguric renal failure, or ATN, to those with prerenal azotemia, but might not be as helpful in differentiating between non-oliguric renal failure and prerenal azotemia. Importantly, it must also be remembered that FENA is less helpful in patients who are on diuretics, as that diuretics will increase the amount of sodium loss in the urine and thus skew the FeNa. So in these patients, we must remember that F.E. urea can be used, as urea excretion is not affected by diuretics.
1: Well, let me interrupt right there, and this is a point that I always like to try to make. If a patient is on diuretics and they still have a low FeNa, what do you think that means? In the context of someone with AKI or an acute elevation of their creatinine.
0: Sure. So, you know, if a patient um, still has a, a low sodium or a low FINA, I should say, in the setting of being on diuretics, that's even more of a sign that they're extremely hypovolemic because they've are they literally run out of, of sodium to excrete in the urine at that point. So- that's a
1: good point. So that's what I want to try to get the listeners to understand is that really what the FINA is trying to do is give you an idea of uh, of what the avidity of the renal tubulars are to reclaiming sodium. And that is an important concept. In ATN or those with damaged tubules, you lose the ability to reclaim sodium and you lose it. That gives you a high phena. In patients that are volume depleted and they want to reclaim sodium, they lose very little sodium in their urine, making a very small fractional excretion of sodium, thus, indicating or suggesting pre renal azotemia. The one thing that I always want to tell residents when they're rounding is that these are suggestive findings, and they can uh, change um, based on a variety of other reasons. So just having a low FENA in and of itself is suggestive, but not diagnostic.
0: So besides the FENA and FE urea, what about urine microscopy? This is something that uh, nephrologists tend to do a lot, or people think we do. Is this helpful um, at all, differentiating between prerenal and intrinsic renal
1: disease? Well, back in 2010, a systematic review was performed. This looked specifically at prerenal azotemia versus ATN, and whether urine microscopy was helpful in differentiating the two. It showed that, in fact, urine microscopy is helpful in differentiating the two. With the presence and number of renal tubular epithelial cells and renal tubular epi- epithelial cell casts, or granular casts, or we sometimes refer to as muddy brown casts, appearing more often with the diagnosis of ATN.
0: Interesting. So, yeah, I think most med students and residents have heard the term muddy brown cast before to refer to ATN. But what about prerenal azotemia? Can we see any casts in that?
1: Yes, you can find uh, hyaline casts in pre-renal azotemia. You can also see hyaline casts in just the urine of normal individuals. So the presence of casts, again, isn't a 100% surefire way to diagnose things. And that's why you pick up clues in every direction that you can find from the history, the physical exam, um, uh, recent medications they might have taken, uh, urine microscopy. These all come together for the diagnosis.
0: Great. So we've been talking a lot about ATN, but what about the other types of intrinsic kidney injury?
1: There are multiple other types of intrinsic kidney injury. One that I wanted to talk about was acute interstitial nephritis, or AIN. Another one, which we really uh, gets our heart rate up, is glomerulonephritis. <laughs> yep. Um, vasculitis is another very serious intrinsic kidney disease. Um, vascular disease, crystal nephropathies, and intratubular deposition of paraproteins. So these are all different processes that can directly affect the organ. And Dr. Sinclair has mentioned several times the word parenchyma, uh, which is basically just another word for the kidney tissue itself.
0: Yep. So um, we know that AIN often results from immunologically mediated lymphocytic infiltration. Let's um, say that five times fast of the renal parenchymal, there's that word again, interstitium, often with accompanying eosinophils. Now, while the classic presentation consists of AKI accompanied by the triad of fever, rash, and eosinophilia, um, this is actually only seen in a small minority of patients. And this is funny because in medical school, we all learn that urine eosinophils are, are pathognomonic for and I yeah. believe, I remember being tested on that on at least one or two of the steps. Um, so, but this is actually shown in a C Jason article from 2013. Uh oh, NIFBuster
1: time! <laughs> this is important. Get ready okay.
0: um, to not be completely true that urineosinophils are so pathognomonic. So, in this study, kidney biopsy was actually used as the gold standard for diagnosis That's for AIM.
1: good. I'd take that any time.
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, out of 566 patients who had both a urineosinophils test. And a native kidney biopsy performed within one week of each other, 91 of these patients were found on biopsy to have AIN. When they looked at a 1% urine eosinophil cutoff and compared the AIN patients to the patients with other etiologies of their kidney failure, uh, urine eosinophils had only a 30.8% sensitivity and a 68.2% specificity. And this 1% urine eosinophil cutoff is what most labs use. Furthermore, when they increased that percentage of urine eosinophil cutoff to 5% urine eosinophils, while the specificity did improve to 91.2%, the sensitivity declined even further to 19.8%. And as we all know, sensitivity is is important when ruling something out, right? So with such a low sensitivity, not seeing urine eosinophils can't really rule out uh, AIN for us, correct? So it's not a... Again, not not a great marker.
1: And also urine eosinophils can be seen across a wide spectrum of kidney diseases. So in these instances, relying on the clinical history is exceedingly important. The u- clinical utility of urine eosinophils is quite low, and we oftentimes won't even order it anymore. Right. And, it, and that
0: makes a lot of sense. And, and most importantly, you know, uh, kind of like you said, it's not going to help us to change our pretest probability of in either way. So whether we see it or not, it's not really going to affect our management decisions. So if that's the case, uh, what is really the utility in even ordering it anymore? And I think a lot of nephrologists have kind of moved away from this test because of that reason. This concludes part two of Dr. Sparks and Dr. Sinclair's discussion on AKI. To hear about causes and management of AKI, listen to part three.
1: The views and opinions stated during this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Department of Veterans Affairs or the Durham VA Hospital.